Welcome to The G Word, the podcast that explores the crime of genocide, why it still happens, and why bringing accountability is so difficult. I am Clémence Pinault. And I'm Sheila Kim. We are here to bridge the gap between academics, survivors, and human rights practitioners to understand genocidal processes, narratives, and what justice looks like. This episode is about South Sudan, the country where we met back in 2009 in a small town called Torit. It focuses on the international community's response to the conflict that started in December 2013. And you were there, Sheila. I was with the UN peacekeeping mission in the period leading up to what was actually the third civil war of South Sudan. And then I was in Juba, capital city, during the outbreak of the war until I left in 2014 and experienced and witnessed the violence unfold myself. So this was a third civil war, which means that there were two conflicts before, one that picked up in the 1960s, and then a second civil war that started in 1983 and ran until 2005. So for 22 years, and one of the longest conflicts in the continent. And this conflict ended with the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement in 2005 between the SPLA, otherwise known as the Sudan People's Liberation Army, with the Southern Rebel Group, and the government of Sudan. And you will hear quite a bit about this conflict because it's related to the third civil war. In 2005, started an interim period of about six years called the CPA period. This is in reference to the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. That culminated in a referendum of independence. And so the country became independent from Sudan in 2011, the newest country on the block, so to speak, but it descended into a third civil war in December 2013. Genocide is always presented to the world as something other than what it is. This is what Mark Levine writes in his book, Genocide in the Age of the Nation State. The case of South Sudan has not been acknowledged as a genocide by the international community. But UN officials at the time, including UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, repeatedly said that the risk of genocide in the country was all too real. And they likened conditions in South Sudan to those in Rwanda on the eve of its genocide. In 2016, the UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan said that a steady process of ethnic cleansing was underway in the country, involving massacres, starvation, gang rape, and the destruction of villages. There exists no international convention for ethnic cleansing. So that is the object of this episode. Not only the violence, but also the reaction of the international community, which we will learn about through the perspectives of two former diplomats from the United States and Canada. Both of them were in the country when it collapsed into a new civil war in 2013. Nicolas Coughlin first experienced Sudan during the past civil war, and he was the first Canadian ambassador to South Sudan after it became independent in 2011. Elizabeth Chacofond, our second guest, is a former American diplomat who also came to be stationed in South Sudan in the lead-up to the Third Civil War. She resigned from the State Department in December 2017. So maybe let's start with Elizabeth Chacofond. Uh, Elizabeth, you have published a book uh, recently uh, that's called The Descent Channel. American diplomacy in a dishonest age. And so can you tell us what this book is based on and where you're coming from? Sure. The book chronicles my time working on South Sudan as a U.S. diplomat. Um, and it covers the period pretty much from 
when I arrived in South Sudan in July 2013 until I resigned from my position as a foreign service officer in the end of 2017. But it uses the South Sudan example to relay concerns and problems with U.S. foreign policy writ large because of how we make a lot of the same mistakes that that we saw on the ground in South Sudan across our foreign policy. And it just uses my experience of learning about those challenges to share stories, not only about how we act in South Sudan, but how um, U.S. foreign policy has stumbled over many decades. Right. Thank you, Lizzie. And then we are joined by Nicolas Coglan, who, Nicolas, you are a Canadian citizen and you recently published a book about South Sudan as well that's called Collapse of a Country, a Diplomat's Memoir of South Sudan. Nicolas, can you tell us a bit about, you know, when you were based in South Sudan, what exactly was your role there? When did you leave and why did you write this book? Okay, well, to begin with, we had a we had a very peculiar diplomatic status in South Sudan. Canada had what was called an office of the Canadian Embassy, which meant we did not have full diplomatic status. I was there as the head of the office. Um, in the middle of my tenure, I had a four-year tenure in South Sudan, 2012 to 2016. And in the middle of that tenure, I was upgraded to embassy, and I had the formal title ambassador. In fact, nothing changed on the ground. It was just a the Canadian bureaucratic process. So I served four years in South Sudan. And prior to that, uh, nearly a decade earlier, I had been for three years in Sudan, in Khartoum, when it was all one country. So that was a very useful background experience. Uh, gave me knowledge of some of the players. Of course, literally some of the same players were back on the scene again. Um, even down to our, we had the same embassy gardener in Juba as we had in Khartoum, which was quite nice. But the book is, um, it is, it is, it is a memoir. Um, uh, Canada, of course, a much smaller player, particularly vis-a-vis South Sudan. Uh, you could probably say the U.S. was the midwife of South Sudan, for better or for worse. Um, Canada was always an observer. We've always had many NGOs and people associated with it, but certainly a second, uh, second level player. So it is a little bit more of a of a, a memoir rather than an analytical piece in that sense. And so in a way, the fact that you had Canada had less stakes and wasn't really the midwives, you, you were sort of uh, in the delivery room, right? You were an observer. That's a good phrase. One of the sobering aspects of my tenure was when I arrived in South Sudan in, in 2012, was how few people, it's logical really, but how few people really knew much about those earlier years and how the country had come into being. And in particular, how in many senses we had all coddled or spoiled the SPLM, the SPLA. They could do no wrong. If you were in Lokichokyo, which was the UN base in northern Kenya, through which all of South Sudan was basically kept alive, it felt like you were on a crusade. Uh, There was no question. The SPLM, the SPLA, these were the good guys. And the guys up in Khartoum were absolutely evil. I mean, to the point at which, I mean, it was a crusade also in a religious sense, many faith-based organizations. So South Sudan, the southern Sudanese could do no wrong. And we, the international community, the NGOs, the church-based groups, ran southern Sudan for the war years, which really took the SPLM off the hook. All they had to do was fight. Uh, and I think this partly accounts for the, we didn't hold them to account on anything. You know, you think John Garang was a Nelson Mandela. Well, no, he was not. There were many abuses. 
they were recruiting child soldiers. It was seen as glamorous for the SPLM to recruit child soldiers and use them. And it still is. Um, we gave them a, a, a totally a total carte blanche. And it took a while for that to wear off, I think, uh, even from independence. Uh, I think there was almost a sense of shock. Lizzie will speak to this, but uh, the U.S. could hardly believe how quickly it had gone bad and that these guys were not the uh, the great Democrats and saints that, uh, that they had shaped up to be. So that experience was a very useful one. Yeah. So on that note, because I, I think this is such an interesting point, you know, desiring not to stare into the eyes of, of the SPLS human rights violations by the international community at the time. And so I, I wonder if Lizzie can tell us a bit about her experience at the time working for the U.S. Embassy and trying to ring the alarm because, Lizzie, you got there before the eruption of the conflict, right? So what was your experience working, including on, you know, violence against civilians in Zhongli? Um, state, which I believe is really the place that you worked on before the explosion of the conflict in, in Juba in December 2013. What was your experience and, and what was the reaction of your colleagues when you tried to bring this up? Well, certainly. And I'll start by saying I think Nicholas is not giving himself quite enough credit because at the time, by the time I arrived, there were people who had a long history there, but most of the people with a long history there on the diplomatic side really had blinders on. And I think that uh, Nicholas had a level of, of understanding of the history that was quite useful going into the crisis as it erupted. So it was helpful to have people in the diplomatic community who had a longer and more clear-eyed understanding of the history. But uh, certainly when I arrived, I was, I was an entire newcomer. I was a second tour uh, foreign service officer who had learned as much as I could study up in the year um, ahead of arrival. But I, I certainly didn't have that deep knowledge of the players or of, of what had been happening on the ground. But that is probably why it seemed so evident to me when I landed on the ground and started looking into the human rights abuses that were happening that our reaction, and by our, I mean the United States' reaction, and, and a lot in the diplomatic community, including in parts of the UN, um, our reaction was a lot softer than I was than I would have thought, which made me start to see some of the violence, particularly as you've uh, mention in Jongle State, which was very, very violent in those um, the months leading up to my arrival and in the months following my arrival around you know, July, August, uh, September of 2013. It seemed to me as though um, it didn't make any sense that the United States, which had such a such a strong role in South Sudan and should have had so much influence, was so very hesitant to call out the government for its role in gross abuses against uh, civilians in Jongle State and its role in stoking violence that was happening between communities there. Um, so that was just a little bit of the carry in the coal mine for me to see how difficult it was for us to put out strong statements against what the government was doing. Um, and, and that would certainly you know, kind of portend what would come months later when we found it very difficult to call out specifically who was committing violence uh, at the outbreak of the war. That's a really interesting point that you make in terms of when you are in the time up until there's an outbreak of conflict or a backsliding into conflict, um, there are often constant analysis and you know monitoring in terms of the situation. And do you think in that time leading up to there were the right signals, the right information going to Washington or to your superiors in terms of early warning and asking for a response? 
the information was absolutely there. Um, and my predecessor, um, Oliver Maines, had been doing a tremendous amount of reporting back to Washington on the violence in Jonglei. Um, and uh, shortly after I arrived, we actually put out a collective statement that was condemning the violence. And, and that seemed in the international community as this really big win. But again, if you read the text of the statement, it was very much both sides need to peace with the violence. Civilians need to be protected. There was a lot of passive language and who was actually doing the commissions of violence. Um, so we knew what was going on, but I think that, you know, we, the international community collectively, were hesitant to really uh, choose sides in terms of who was the offender of the violence. And it, it brings you back to so many scenarios where there's just a, a tremendous kind of misbalance and imbalance in who has the power and the ability to commit abuse. Um, and in a scenario where you are supporting a government and you're providing a lot of financial support and political support and credibility to that government. Uh, you know, there might be other players who are committing violence, but you have control over the ones or, or you have influence over the ones that you're supporting. And so it gets back to, you know, what was the what was the U.S. doing and what did Washington know? Washington knew about the violence, but uh, Washington was hesitant to come down strongly um, it, with criticism towards a government that we were supporting. And that was really where the disconnect was. We understood what was happening and we understood the risk, but we were unwilling to address the underlying cause, which was unaccountability towards uh, the violence that was being committed. And so this lack of accountability had really festered over the years, right? Because that's, that's really what I hear um, in Nicolas' uh, remarks as well. Um, you know, throughout the Second Civil War, Uh, Nicolas, you just told us that uh, John Garang, the leader of the SPLA, so for our listeners, uh, the SPLA is standing for the Sudan People Liberation Army, um, whose main political branch, the SPLM, the Sudan People Liberation Movement, then uh, was entrusted, was basically given the keys of South Sudan uh, through the Comprehensive Peace Agreement in 2005 to lead the new country. So, Nicolas, you told us that John Garang was the leader of this rebel group uh, that was fighting against uh, the government of Sudan. He was no Nelson Mandela. So this lack of accountability had been festering for years. Do you think that this is, this is related? Do you think that there was a built-up throughout the years? You're right. The lack of accountability goes back for years. There was also a great reluctance because Sudan was seen as such a villain of the peace in very many ways. And rightly so, in you know, it was a horrendous government. Uh, but any condemnation of South Sudan looked as though you might be equating them with Sudan. Uh, when it came to the question of arms embargo, no, we can't have an arms embargo on South Sudan because that would make it look like Sudan, and they're not as bad as Sudan. This was this was a almost a mantra there. And of course, things have, things have changed now in Sudan, but that unwillingness to put them on the same level um, was very, very deeply uh, felt, probably by, by all countries, not just by, by the US. So do you think it's just a failure to imagine that you know, the people that you supported for years, so the, say the, the SPLA, were just as capable and just as skilled at waging violence against their own people? Do you think it's just a failure of, of conceptualizing this? Or do you think that it's actually sending us back to just hard political interests, including regional interests for the United States? Uh, you, you may be pleased to hear this in a way, less pleased in others, that diplomats are, are very bad at listening to the experts. Um, <laughs> 
we are generalists by definition. It's seen as a virtue. You come in from, like I'd come in from Colombia, and to some extent the Colombian experience was useful in South Sudan. We come in and we move and we, at, 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 at most in South Sudan, people stay two years. I was exceptional and I stayed four. So we stay two years. We're on leave a lot of the time. We're rotating in and out. And it, it sounds very harsh, but nobody reads up on the history, um, let alone your people at headquarters. So when I found myself, you know, trying to explain what was happening, even prior to the outbreak of violence in December 2013, when you go back to the Boer massacre and the Khartoum Agreement and this and that, well, you know, they're just they're just uh, tuning out at so, headquarters. So for our listeners, again, the Boer massacre is 1991 and the Khartoum Agreement is 97. So Nicolas has really a deep historical knowledge of the country. And yes, indeed, much, much more knowledgeable than the average diplomat who indeed will stay maybe a year or two. Yes. It's by, you know, by the time I left in 2016, there was not one diplomat who had been there present for the crisis in 2013. So even when we were having internal meetings discussing what had gone wrong in 2013, I was having to explain and basically do the beginner's guide. Um, and equally, let's go back to 2013. If you dropped the term CPA in a meeting, you see some people start to look blank. What's the CPA? There's a comprehensive peace agreement. And then if you tried to explain how the CPA had really gifted South Sudan to the quite unrepresentative SPLM, SPLA, and that this was part of the problem. Again, people were tuning out on the ground, let alone at headquarters. And that's bureaucracies, unfortunately. I'm not sure whether maybe the, the UN even more so. It's, it sounds very, it's very trivial, people rotating in and out. And then, you know, even the fact that in December 2013, a lot of people on vacation, mm -hmm. both at headquarters and in country. So the, the attention to what was really happening and why it was happening, uh, you'd be sometimes quite shocked at the lack of understanding. And it was, it's all there on paper, the reports from the ground. I think the officers on the ground reporting in full, but at a, at a ministerial level or in the U.S. case, a secretary level, I don't know. And, and let's face it, for, for, for most countries, you know, even for the U.S., South Sudan is not a strategic country. There's no oil there. There is no, frankly, there's no danger of, of fundamentalist-based terrorism. Um, it's generating refugees, but that's always a problem down the road. And so from the Canadian angle, and I think from the view of many countries, the number one issue in December 13 was what about our, our nationals, our citizens? That's all we're worried about. So therefore, for example, when, when the Ugandans came in, You know, in geopolitical terms, this was probably not a great idea that we really gave them carte blanche to come in, hold the airport, and push the rebels back. But I can tell you on the ground at the time, it seemed like kind of a good idea because uh, there was a real fear that Juba would be overrun. Particularly in December 2013, you know, both of you have your roles and your respective positions as American and Canadian diplomats in South Sudan. So, Lizzie, what was your experience at the start of the outbreak of the conflict as a diplomat? Well, I think I'd like to reiterate a point that, that Nicholas made, which, which is something important to remember, which was this was right ahead of the holidays, and that might sound trivial, but we basically had the B team in place. Literally the Friday before fighting began on that Sunday evening, 
most of the leads in most offices had hopped on a flight to go home for the holidays. So we were understaffed even below the understaffed levels we were already at. That weekend, there was this very large political, you know, we've talked about the SPLM being, you know, the be-all and end-all political controller in, in South Sudan. They basically, you know, one-party state, effectively. And so they were having their big, uh, I'm not sure what you would call it, kind of a reorganization and reassessment of their fundamental um, core documents and, and guiding positions for their constitution and things of that nature. So we knew it was going to be a big weekend of, of potential political tension. Um, I think that looking back on it, it wasn't at all surprising that the violence began at the end of that weekend. So we're talking December 15, 16, 2013. Mm -hmm. Correct. And so that's, um, it would have been the 14th and the 15th, the Saturday and Sunday, that this big political event happened. And various signs started happening over the weekend that where we knew that things were getting very tense. Um, you know, we don't need to go into all the political back and forth of it, but effectively, you had um, a build up to that weekend of a closing of political space by Salvatore, the president, pushing some of his political competitors out of the space. And so uh, Sunday night, we, we knew that the meeting hadn't gone well, but otherwise it was fairly quiet around town. And that was when we started getting phone calls. And I, I was watching a Christmas movie um, in my little container home. And started, got one phone call from a contact saying, it's bad. Things are very tense. He wanted to meet. And I said, okay, what about Tuesday? He said, got to be sooner. And within hours, Juba had erupted in a couple of places. But by mid, I mean, less than 20 hours later, um, ethnic cleansing was going on in the streets of Juba. It happened very fast. And there, in those first hours, and I'd be curious, uh, Nicholas's thoughts on this. In those first hours, the question was, okay, we've got the gates of the residential compound closed until further notice, but is this going to be just shooting that happens at night sometimes in Juba, or is this going to be a real breakdown into war? And it, it took about a full day before we were pretty certain that we were looking at war. And to Nicholas, what was your experience, and specifically in terms of being the Canadian diplomat in this scenario? Well, as, as Lizzie said, there was quite a long build-up right since mid-2013, which is when Machar had been fired in the cabinet. So I think we were all watching and we were meeting with increasing frequency. Um, the European Union ambassador was by now convoking meetings probably every two or three days, which included the Ugandans and the Kenyans and so on, not just the usual Western suspects. So there was a lot of information going back and forth. And as Lizzie said, right, we had a meeting, in fact, on the Sunday, um, on the day before it all broke out. You know, my own experience, yeah, I mean, I, I woke up about 3 a.m. There was flashes and what I very stupidly thought was uh, thunder and maybe the rainy season had started like three months earlier. Um, and then the guards came in with their own stories. And we had a very, uh, and then gunfire, of course, during, during the day. One of the first questions, I should say, you know, Lizzie will be amused. One of the first questions from Ottawa is, can you get to the American embassy if necessary? <laughs> but because they had Marines, they had armed, uh, armed, armed personnel at least. But my, my first direct sense of what was going on, I should say there was nothing on the radio. There was Christmas music. I remember they were playing the little drummer boy endlessly. Um, in the afternoon, we had a very surreal call from the foreign minister to come for a briefing. My driver, who's normally pretty happy-go-lucky guy, was a bit nervous about it, but we went in. And in many ways, it was a laughable meeting. You could hardly hear anything because of the gunfire and the tanks going past 
And he was just saying, oh, all those people at the airport, they're just the people going on holiday. We wish them a happy Christmas, you know, ha ha. I get back to the embassy, which is after two hours away, and blocking the drive, blocking our gateway was a dead body where there had not been one two hours previously. So obviously we stopped. You literally couldn't get in. And a neighbor came over and I said, well, you know, what's, what's this about? What's happened? And he explained very briefly that this person was walking along the road. Uh, there was an SPLA two by four, uh, a four by four coming the other way. There was a 15 second conversation. One of the soldiers pulled out a gun and shot him in the head. And I, and, and then I very naively, I said, well, why? And the, the neighbor just bent down, picked up his baseball cap and showed me the markings on his head. So the marking on the head, basically distinguishing people belonging to different ethnic groups in South Sudan. Exactly. And this, these particular markings are the markings of the Nuer ethnicity. And over the next few days, when we were evacuating citizens, um, it, it very quickly, I very quickly realized they were all Nuer. Every single Canadian who wished to be evacuated was of Nuer, of the Nuer ethnicity. And many of them were extremely nervous when we picked them up at the UN Protection Civilian site. They wanted to ride in the back of the, 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 uh, uh, the Land Cruiser on the floor with a baseball cap over their head. So we actually took to carrying a, a supply of baseball caps because they wished to hide the markings. And the same, I literally had to hold their hands sometimes taking them through at the airport because there were armed men trying to pull them on one side or speaking them to, in the air to see if they would answer in the air. And that, I think, is when the ethnic dimension really hit me. I mean, I knew that we, I think we all knew the political dimension, which in a sense happens to be ethnic, uh, but we hadn't, it really struck me then that this was, what was going on was totally ethnically driven. And what about you, Lizzie? Uh, was the ethnic dimension very obvious to you as well? It became obvious very quickly. I mean, I, I still recall we were, that Monday morning, the 16th, we were still trying to wrap our heads around what was going on. We were meeting, we were all getting, everybody at the embassy was getting reports from different contacts across town. And I got a text message from the same uh, contact who had first alerted me to the violence the night before. And it was, you know, obviously typed very quickly. And it just, it explained um, they're killing people in the streets. They're picking them out based on newer markings. Um, and that was, I, I remember just getting chills reading it because you knew immediately that um, it was, it was a systematic approach to, to slaughter. It was, focused on newer men. It was focused, um, I mean, they were rounding people up and you started to hear reports throughout the day. And at this time, it was it was dangerous in the streets. We couldn't go out and verify things on our own. There were a small handful of, of people that I knew who were in the kind of uh, you know, diplomatic, not even the diplomatic community, I think humanitarian community who were getting out and able to send reports back. But I was getting reports from, you know, embassy staff, local embassy staff who were out in the streets who were able to send us back information about you know different places where there were roadblocks where men were being pulled up and rounded up. The first kind of two days were really systemic violence against New Air and they were targeting specific neighborhoods because um, you know, we had to learn very quickly things that as a, a few months in, I was not aware of which neighborhoods were New Air, which neighborhoods were Dinka. You're rapidly trying to find out. And I also recall going to our of uh, human resources management officer and saying, 
yes, we're, we're trying to track down which of our local staff are where and who's safe, but do we know which ones are newer? And he responded, we can't ask them that. That's against U.S. Law, labor law, which is true. We can't ask them what their ethnicities are. Uh, under kind of U.S. labor law standards, it's considered a bias. But at that time, you, you rapidly had to find out, and we were able to based on who felt safe coming out to the embassy and who didn't. But um, those types of things that we should have been tracking probably for years uh, just for the safety of our own employees. But we found ourselves pretty flat-footed to address it. And what were the, the people who you talked to and who escaped, who managed to escape those, I mean, this ethnic massacre? How did they explain this violence to you? Was it clear for them why they were the victims of this violence? It was absolutely clear. I think people were expecting it in large part, but people were going door to door, some in uniform, various uniforms at different security services and some not. But they were in the newer neighborhoods. They were going to newer houses. They were going to houses that weren't newer and asking who was there. I got most of my exposure and information to, to people who had seen it firsthand after the UN had opened up the, their gates to internally displaced people, so the IDP camps on the inside. But it took me a couple of days to get permission from the embassy and from Washington to go out and start interviewing people there. Um, and as, as Nicholas knows, we were focused primarily uh, on, on getting American citizens, getting our own citizens out. But a lot of them had fled to the UN's IDP camps for their own safety. And as he mentioned, even getting them to leave those camps to come with us to the airport was really a challenge. But that's where I got a lot of the information on what was happening in Juba. And over time, Um, and I mean, it would, it would take, you know, a, a whole nother interview to talk about as people started coming down from, you know, further north in the country and other areas where violence was happening, um, also with an ethnic bent to it, but, you know, kind of retaliatory attacks in the other direction. So it was at first, it was all new air, but then it became people trying to get out of other areas as well. What about you, Nick? What did people say to you? Well, it's certainly, you know, every single um, dual national we evacuated had their story, and many of them were quite horrifying. I, one fellow, fellow called Peter, you know, he turned up at the airport. He just had a little carrier bag. He was in shorts and flip-flops and his six-year-old daughter. Uh, that's all he had. Um, didn't even have his his daughter's uh, passport, which we managed to uh, managed to, to work that one out. But somebody had come to his door uh, uh, just now previously, They had pulled the neighbor in front of him, cut the neighbor's throat, and said, you leave now, we're coming back for you. And he had come straight to the airport. I mean, he was just, he was just shaking. You know, as, as the crisis wore on, we stayed in for about two weeks, and then we were ordered to completely shut the embassy. And we then started coming in one day at a time, one day a week, to do more organized evacuations. We would get people together, do their paperwork, get them on a plane, and actually fly out with them to... Nairobi. So I had a lot of chats on the plane out, maybe six or eight weeks in a row with the dual nationals on the way out. And these were often relatively educated people. They'd spent time in Canada, they spoke good English. And, you know, rather depressingly, even the ones with university education, you know, one of them said to me, I said, well, you know, what, what's this about? You're killing yourselves. Your, your country is, you're kind of committing suicide. And he said, he said very depressingly, you know, it's, it's always been like this. Uh, here's Dinka, I am the word. If he doesn't shoot me first, I have to shoot him. And, you know, this is, this is a university-educated person who has fled the country because of civil war, and, but he he's, has this kind of very pessimistic uh, attitude of it was coming, it was always coming, that's how it is. 
at this time, I know that you have both said that the primary objective and priority at that time was to get citizens from respective countries and diaspora out of South Sudan, those who wanted to leave. And But at the same time, as you're reporting, watching and witnessing these serious human rights abuses and violations, what was the reaction from your respective headquarters? Were people absorbing and understanding and following up with your reports? Lizzie? We had a lot more resources, even under resources as we were. We had more resources than a lot of others. So I was fixated on the evacuations largely day to day because that was, you know, that was my job. One of, one of the two hats that I wore was our consular officer. Uh, so American Citizen Services was a big part of that. But I would say, you know, our, and Washington was very fixated on that as well. But the other really major focus was on ending the violence as quickly as possible. But, it, and, and our ambassador and the secretary of state and, um, you know, high level people from the White House were, were very deeply engaged in trying to press both sides to end the violence. What I would say there was far less of a focus on in those early days publicly was what the nature of the violence was. So I, I was, I was spending my days at the airport trying to get people onto planes and out. And I was spending my nights writing up reports that I had heard both from the airport and from the neighboring IDP camps and then from other contacts about what the nature of the violence was. And I felt convinced that if I could capture what was happening and the role of the government in aggravating and launching this effort, that people would, in Washington, would care and they would speak out. But over and over again, the state was coming out were condemning violence on both sides and urging both sides to, um, you know, to, to end the violence and to come to peace talks. And it just did not comport with the conversations we were having privately. The public messaging did not align with what was happening on the ground. And um, it was incredibly frustrating. I would get responses back from high-level folks in Washington applauding the reporting on the crisis and the human rights abuses and on how important it was to capture it. But but my capturing it did not seem to be translating into messaging about you know the government's role in this. Now, fast forward a little bit, and yes, I mean, there there was no coup on you know December fifteenth. But yes, within a few days, uh, the nature had changed, and there was a civil war, and and both sides were engaged in that civil war at that point. But it does not change the fact that you cannot paper over an ethnic cleansing in the capital committed by government forces, and yet we seem to be keep trying to do that. So just for our listeners, um, as soon as the violence started on December 16, President Salva Kiir got on television and started to really spin his attempted coup story and accusing Riyak Majar, his former vice president and new arrival, of leading a coup. And of course, as Nicholas tells us in his book, coup 101 theory says that usually when you wage a coup, you don't do it in your PJs. So there was <laughs> right. no coup. But anyway, going back to that, I, I would like as well to, to ask Nicolas what was the reaction of your colleagues in Ottawa and then ask both of you then because listening to Lizzie and, and you know, the very disheartening experience that you had, do you think that there was an attempt to, if not suppress information, at least deliberately turn a blind eye to it? I think, as you said, it took a while, but gradually the uh, CNR headquarters moved from just being concerned about the consular dimension, the evacuation of Canadians, 
to the politics and human rights abuses. And certainly in Ottawa, they were very receptive to what I was reporting. Because I went up to Bohr about two months after the crisis. And Bohr had been overrun about six or eight times back and forth. One army had come in. And with each wave, the, the atrocities got worse. I mean, we heard this from the hospital staff, and I reported it graphically, of, you know, uh, very sick old patients, old ladies in their 70s and 80s being shot in the hospital beds, babies were raped, sexual assault, you name it. And each time, each time it got worse. So my headquarters was very receptive. But I suppose once we were about six months in, the hard question came back, well, who's winning here? Or who has won? And, you know, the very depressing answer was that really the government was not in danger of being overthrown. Salva Kiir and the principal perpetrator abuses were going to hang on. And then you started to get into questions, you know, where certainly people sitting on the Canadian side were talking about accountability. But, you know, I'm no expert on this, but all the times there's been accountability before, it has been accountability delivered by the victors. If you're talking South Africa, Liberia, even now Sudan. You know, Bashir is finally getting his comeuppance, but that's 20 years on when he's been deposed. I don't think there are any cases of accountability being delivered to a serving head of state and a government that is in office. Um, and least of all, when, frankly, the neighbors, the neighboring countries, are not actually that interested in, that, in seeing that accountability at all. Remember, at the time, you had Bashir was wanted by the ICC, so that's one of the neighbors. They're not really interested in transitional or international justice. Kenyatta, the he was in that situation in Kenya. Uganda, they were major arms sales, and Seveni, not exactly the model Democrat, as we've, as we've now seen. None of the neighbors were interested, really, or are interested in seeing one of their fellow presidents or heads of state go down and be investigated for massive human rights abuses. Now, when we came to, as you see, you know, when things had settled down a little bit, and here, please, don't take this as an insult, Lizzie, but I found that the, the, the higher-level meetings at the JMEC, that this was the body overseeing the uh, implementation of the peace agreement, we would go around the table and address a very strong ambassador by his time, Molly Fee. But when it came to accountability and human rights abuses, by consensus, everybody would turn to me and say, our Canadian colleague would now like to say a few words on accountability. And that's great. You know, I would deliver all of the messages. But the message received was, Frankly, the U.S. is a little ambiguous on accountability. And it's well known, the U.S. attitude was on the, on the ICC and so on. Um, and I, I, I've no, there's no doubt in my mind that the principles in this crisis do not believe that the international community will force them to the wall on this. Uh, they do not believe that when push comes to shove, that we will really push for accountability. And, uh, I, and, and I, I fear that that is true and, until there is a complete regime change or generational change. I take no offense whatsoever at that absolutely accurate account of the U.S. role and position, uh, which I beat my head against the wall about for quite some time. Um, you began a question about, you know, was the international community turning a blind eye? And I think Nichols captured this well that it wasn't so much a blind eye as a so what as a, so what are, what are we going to do about this? What can we do? And this was a conversation that I had as, you know, again, a, uh, I was a second tour officer at the time. And I had this conversation over and over again, you know, but what's happening is wrong. And the United States has influence. And what came back to me in response was, you know, we can't keep wagging our finger at the government because it won't do any good. 
and we'll lose our influence. So I got into this kind of circular discussion, which was, let's use our influence. And they'd say, but if we use it, we'll lose our influence. Well, why don't we use our influence? Well, if we use it, we won't have it anymore because they'll ignore us. So it came to me as kind of this, well, the so what to me was, so what's the point in having any influence over this government at all? It was a hard lesson to learn, but I came around to the belief that I don't think the U.S. could have stopped the violence. I think that we could have done a lot to manage and and mitigate how much it was, for example, by early on supporting an arms embargo or not actually blocking an arms embargo for starters. But what became so frustrating to me was not so much that we didn't stop the violence, because I think that there's only so much we could do, but that we continued to be complicit in it by continuing to give legitimacy to a government that we knew was was abusing its people. Now, now, as Nicholas says, you know that you're looking around the region and you're wondering what you can do at like you are a you know kind of diplomatic. Other states are looking around, um, and you know it's true. Uh, countries like Uganda had a strong interest in maintaining stability, but the stability that you had in South Sudan by having a strong man at the helm who was getting away with what he wanted to get away with. Um, it's short-term stability. And as we see now, it's been years and years of instability. And we, we did nothing during the war to really mitigate that. And but, but the real lesson is that we did nothing before the war to show that there would be some costs in your international reputation, in the level of international assistance you get. And let's say the assistance that we give to your Ministry of Petroleum that funds your entire war effort. Those are the types of things that we could have changed early on that might not have completely avoided war, but but could have made the U.S. less complicit in it and reduced the level of violence that, that ended up happening. So, Nicholas, then I turn to you based on what Lizzie had just said and also what you had mentioned earlier, mentioning South Africa and other examples, that this lack of accountability is not symptomatic of just South Sudan, that this is a broader trend that both have been struggling with in your own specific capacities. So what can you say from your perspective about this and in terms of our international system? I think it is it it is a real problem. I, I think we will only get, as I said, we will only get justice in South Sudan. And I think there has to be justice for the country to move ahead. There's never been any accountability for anything. As I said, we have bad part of the, the, the blame for that. It goes way, way back 20, 25 years. There's never been any accountability. So things probably won't change until civil society, that's much abused, much maligned term, decides to change their rulers in South Sudan and and possibly turn on them. But then we come to, you know, what should we be supporting in South Sudan? I go back to just before the crisis in 2013. um, The donors had been laboring for a year and a half on what was called the New Deal Compact for South Sudan which was really a, a, a method of development of cooperation, especially designed for fragile or near-failing states. And the idea of a New Deal compact is the donors put in a certain amount of money, but jointly with the government and with the people of South Sudan, they develop objectives and benchmarks. This is what we want to do. We want to do it together. We're going to put in X number of dollars. You're going to put in X number of dollars. And an agreed list of priorities. Now, the list of priorities, which was from a long consultation process, it ended up with number one, to the surprise of donors, was national internal reconciliation. Well, a lot of donors looked at that and said, well, you know, that's kind of nice, but it's a little bit touchy-feely. You know, how do we fund that? You know, how do we show results on that? 
And of course, it's very difficult because reconciliation is something you have to keep working on, you know, year after year. And we pushed that down the list and said, you know, we want to do education. We want to do health, which are very important. Those things you can measure, number of kids in schools, hospital beds, and so on. We pushed reconciliation down the list. Um, then everything fell apart because of the crisis. But I think in terms of we probably need some new kind of compact. In other words, a sitting down, having some tough talks. This is all the money we're putting in. First of all, we want to see where your oil money is going. You know, in the, the agreement that ended the conflict or nominally ended it, it, it specifies transparency on the oil revenues. We haven't insisted on it. Western governments have the ability to do forensic research and find out exactly what is going on. We haven't done it. We know hardly any is reaching the people of South Sudan. Services are still being delivered by the international community. So I think we really need to sit down and deal on this and say, this is what we're prepared to put forward, but we want to see this, this, and this. We want to see where the oil money goes. We want at least to see the hybrid court really advancing. It's been seven, eight years uh, on paper. Um, the, as I said, the principals don't think it's going to happen. That's the only reason they agree to it. They don't think it'll ever happen. We're, we're, we're short of avenues here. But the 10th anniversary could be a time to really have those tough talks. Will we do so? I don't know. We have an internal coordination problem. We don't really talk to each other as much as we should. A lot of the smaller countries like Canada, we tend to pass the button and say, well, there's no point in us doing anything until the U.S. does. And we'll have to work around the U.S. But I think it would now be a, a great time to do it. But do I have hope for accountability in the short and medium term? Sadly, no. But I do think that the country will not really move ahead until we have some kind of reckoning for what's happened. It won't be, obviously, all of those involved will not be fingered. I, I once spoke to David Deng, who works quite a lot on this. And he said, listen, you know, a good result on accountability would be if 15 or 20 people were tried, if seven or eight were found guilty. But it's probably going to cost you $100 million, $200 million to get to that, and maybe 15 years. That's the, the past. Is it worth doing? Yes, I think it is still worth doing. I think the very limited victories of the ICC are very important, however long they have been in coming. I think they do send a message. I know some of the generals and others in South Sudan laugh off the sanctions by saying, you know, how many cows do I have in New York? None. But I think there is stigma in those sanctions. I think we can do a lot more with the sanctions really follow up, you know, where is the money, the travel sanctions. The, the simple, most effective sanction would be if Uganda and Kenya really said, no, you can't fly down to see your kids in boarding school. We're not giving you a visa to come in. If we lent on those governments to enforce the travel sanctions. So if we really got real, there are the tools there. So who's we, by the way? Lizzie, that sends us to America's influence. Do you care to comment on that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think Nicholas has hit the, the nail on the head there. The biggest leverage that we had, at the United States had, and the United States being uh, in a position to have influence, would have been using our leverage on Uganda in particular, and also Kenya and Ethiopia. At any point, that would have been the most effective approach because preventing some of these actors from going to New York is not going to be a problem. But as Nicholas said, preventing them from going to where their big house is in the Ugandan suburbs will do that. The challenge is priorities. And um, and this is a huge problem for the United States foreign policy in Africa is that we have over and over and over again prioritized our security interests in certain parts of the continent. And that has uh, made it almost impossible for us to 
take the steps we need to on situations like South Sudan, not because of a lack of influence in South Sudan, but because of our unwillingness to use that currency on powerful players in the region like Uganda. Now, based on what you said, Lizzie, and also you, Nicholas, drawing out some very concrete and specific aspects of where action could have been taken years before into policy and approach. And humans seem to have a very interesting condition of repetitive amnesia, where we strive for best ways forward. We look for lessons learned. We commit ourselves to best practices, but yet we make the same mistakes over and over again. So from both of you, we'd be interested to hear in our listeners what are your lessons that you draw from your experience specifically in South Sudan that speaks to this bigger issue of when we know we've seen it in the past, we know history, but why do we not make different decisions? And when I say we, I mean all of us, especially those who are decision makers, such as in Washington, D.C. and Ottawa. The, the, the lessons are understood, I think, and, and known. I, obviously, academics Diplomats, to some extent, if I go way, way back to when I left Khartoum in 2003, uh, we had financed, jointly with other donors, a project led by the United Nations Development Program called Planning for Peace. We could see that peace was coming in the uh, Sudanese Civil War. And this was a series of scenarios. Of these are the issues that an autonomous or independent South Sudan is going to have to deal with. And there was a big folder developed for each one. One was the oil, the fact that the pipeline ran through the north, the pricing of oil, a potential for conflict. Another was internal reconciliation, human rights, you know, you name it. But I bet you, you know, those folders are probably sitting, just gathering dust on the shelf at UNDP and Khartoum even now. When peace came, everybody said, good job, guys. We got that out of the way. Uh, now let's move on to Darfur, which was coming up. So we always just move on to the next crisis. Um, and there's no lack of crises going on. And simply in diplomatic terms, if you were working on the CPA, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, you got a peace agreement on paper, and it held. It held for a number of years. There were flaws with it, but fine. You moved on, you moved on to your other assignment. You moved to Syria, Yemen, or whatever. Um, But that's, unfortunately, that's the name of the game. Um, We keep moving on. You know, something always happens, something else. We don't stick with it. Some countries stick better than others. I mean, I must say, I hand it to Norway, a very small country. They take particular issues, and over the years, by staying with them, regardless of which government is in office in Norway, they become experts. They have their development experts, their NGO experts, they have their people in the UN, and they pick five or six issues, and they stay with them. And South Sudan is one they've stayed with. We're a very small country, developed a lot of expertise. Uh, but they are, you know, they're a country, it's, the population is smaller than Toronto's. It's 4 million, 5 million. They're very small. They've stayed with Colombia, and to some extent, they've stayed with the Middle East. So it's, you know, part of it is staying with your, with, with your issues. But fortunately, and this is a little bit of a, a get out of jail card, when it comes to South Sudan, it was, you know, a Western creation, and it was particularly a U.S. creation. It's tempting for us to say, well, but, but it, it's a reality. We will depend on the U.S. to take the lead on South Sudan. Um, And I think there is a willingness to follow and be supportive. But on international justice in particular, this is where the U.S. card can be a little equivocal, as we're seeing right now in the the West Bank and and, and Gaza. But the lesson learned is, yeah, know your issues, 
stick with your issues, you know, hold to your values. But we're very bad at that. We just keep moving to the next crisis. And Lizzie, what are your thoughts on this? I think that the, the biggest lesson learned is that bad behavior that is tolerated will continue to get worse. And I mean, I think that that's the lesson that you learn, whether you're dealing with security services, whether you're dealing with, you know, autocrats, whether you're dealing with police in the United States, or if you're dealing with a toddler. It's the lesson's the same. It's like a universal human nature issue. If you get away with bad behavior, you will continue to do so if it's in your interest to commit that bad behavior. So, I mean, that's that's a big lesson. And that's one that obviously the, the United States has learned many times and forgotten. But I, I think the reason we haven't acted on that is exactly what Nicholas has said, which is we move on. We deal with the biggest crisis and then and then we split. We congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. We, uh, The United States in particular, in, in Africa, but in a lot of parts of the world, has a real um, inability to have nuance with its foreign policy. We reduce the narratives down to good versus evil, and then we stick with them. And inertia is a very powerful force with foreign policy for many of the reasons that we've talked about today. The one being that you know, we have high turnover of our diplomats. Uh, a big issue in the United States is our four-year presidential term. We have so many political appointees involved in our, you know, involved in our uh, foreign affairs that you have people who are necessarily working on, on not even a four-year term, but usually about a two-year term, because by the time you get close enough to the next presidential election, most of the major players have turned their eyes to an election. And I recall that one of the pushbacks that we got, and this, this wasn't even on, um, I was in Somalia at the time leading up to the 2016 election, but I, I heard similar concerns with South Sudan, which was, we can't make any big moves because we can't afford a big crisis that has our hands on it right ahead of an election. And so we were not willing to really grapple with the challenges in some of these places in a way that might have had, a, you know, a positive impact because of the election looming. So part of it is just structural difficulty with how we run our foreign affairs. And a big part of it is you know, that leads us to this lack of nuance in what we're doing. Well, on this uh, very happy note, we want to thank you both for speaking with us. And we both hope that one day South Sudan will see some form of accountability. Thank you both for being courageous. Thanks for that. I'm, I'm reminded of the you may be familiar with a very old British TV series called Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, when diplomats or civil servants write a report back when it's described as courageous, that means your career is over. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining today's episode of The G Word. You can hear more about our guests' experiences from their books, A Collapse of a Country, A Diplomat's Memoir of South Sudan by Nicholas Coughlin, and The Descent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age by Elizabeth Shackelford. And I gotta plug it because Clemence won't. Her book, War and Genocide in South Sudan, from Cornell University Press, which uses a historical lens to understand the layers and complexities of how wars, conflict, and mass violence developed in South Sudan. 